Thank you, everyone, for coming. My name is David Schlossberg. I'm a professor of environmental politics here uh, in the Department of Government and International Relations. I'm also the co-director of the Sydney uh, Environment Institute, which is a co-sponsor of this event. I want to start, as I normally would, um, by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We have to acknowledge that this land has been a place of learning about the relationship between people and the environment, between human and non-human <coughs> communities for tens of thousands of years. Uh, and as we think in particular about how we might respond to environmental impacts and changes we face in the coming years, we should acknowledge and consult this traditional knowledge built over millennia that has adapted to environmental change that has proven resilient. So earlier today and all day uh, tomorrow, a number of us are sitting around talking about ecological democracy, presenting new work on the topic, thinking about the intersection of democratic thinking, democratic practice, and environmental sustainability. And for me, what's striking um, about today and rewarding really is, um, and I'm sure it'll continue tomorrow, I should say, um, is the way that there are a variety of conceptual approaches. We have people from uh, a number of areas bringing um, the ideas, um, that really sort of dealing with this intersection of democratic engagement uh, and environmental sustainability and a lot of new and fresh ways of thinking about that intersection. But ecological democracy is not a new idea. A number of folks have been talking about that intersection uh, going on 30 years now, well, longer for some. Um, so tonight is in part about thinking back to some of the original ideas of this contemporary field of thought, luckily with some of the people who helped uh, to originate that. Um, but then crucially and along with, um, with you all and some of our participants, we also want to look forward um, to some original ways of thinking uh, about ecological democracy. Most of the work that we're doing here is hopeful uh, and creative. One of my favorite questions of the day so far was the question, what is the politics of your optimism? Um, but of course, it's not all that optimistic out there. Uh, as good as it was, and I only realized this at 5.30 this afternoon, um, to sit in a room with uh, creative and engaging thinkers for a whole day and not look once at Donald Trump's tweets. I think that's the first, <laughs> the first day in a month that I haven't done that. Um, we do have some major epic changing realities out there to deal with. So earlier we were thinking another sort of subtitle for this would have been ecological democracy in the Anthropocene. But given the anti-democratic and authoritarian turn we're experiencing politically, um, it's probably better to suggest, to suggest that um, one of the main questions of the night is the potential for ecological democracy in the Trumpocene, which is a word that's been going around in Sydney for the last uh, couple of weeks. So the format here is going to be pretty conversational. We'll have three speakers uh, give a fairly short introduction to um, the issues and themes of their particular concern. We'll have a bit of question and answer and back and forth up here on the panel, um, and then we'll open it uh, all up to you. So what I want to do now is introduce our very distinguished panel in the order that I actually met them. Um, but not in the order um, that they're going to speak. So John Dreisick is uh, ARC Laureate Fellow and Professor uh, and the Director of the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. John is well known for his work in deliberative democracy and environmental politics and also the intersection uh, of the two. Second, um, to my right, is Robin Eckersley, Professor uh, in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And our third speaker is Karen Backstrand, Professor of Environmental Social Science at the Department of Political Science at the University of Stockholm and a senior faculty member uh, on the Earth Systems Governance Project. John is as well, right? Yeah. Um, which is now part of the larger Future Earth program and there's uh, an Australian offshoot of Future Earth um, uh, building up here. So the order of um, speaking, however, is going to be dictated pretty much by the sort of back and forward, looking back and looking forward. So we'll start with Robin, uh, we'll go on to John, and then we'll go to Karen. Robin. Thank you very much, David. 
I'm going to be spending a little bit more time looking back rather than looking forward, and I, I want to give some of you who may not have in, had any contact before with the idea of ecological democracy a little bit of a prep, as it, as it were. Now, the title of the conference that we're attending is called um, Ecology, Ecological Democracy, Always Greener on the Other Side. And that suggests that a complete coupling of ecological rationality or ecological sustainability and democracy can only be found in some greener place that is really no place, i.e. a utopia. Or we might just think, it a, think of it instead as something that lies on the other side of liberal democracy as we know it, which is how I'd like to present the argument. Um, there's, it's often thought of that we're seeking ecological sustainability as an end, democracy as an open-ended means, so it cannot guarantee any particular ends if it's going to be responsive to pluralism. So there we have a dilemma. You either, when push comes to shove, are you a, a Democrat or an authoritarian Green? Well, that's a horrible choice, and I don't want anyone of us to have to think that way. So I'm going to look back and review how the environment movement and environmental critical theorists looking at this issue have responded to that so-called tension. And then I will look forward just a little bit and look at the Trump scene, which I think we take as code for the confluence of post-truth politics, nationalist populism, political pol polarization, rising inequality, anti-elitism, economic dislocation, and the growing power of transnational capital. But I'm not going to go into all of that in much detail. Okay, so looking back, I think the easiest way to get this across in the very brief time that I have is to think of uh, a spectrum with environmental democracy at one end, which I'll call the thin version, but not in a pejorative sense because it's practical. It's looking to try and make the most of the synergies between ecological sustainability, environmental citizenship and activism and democracy. And at the other end, a thick end, which is critical, so I'll call that ecological democracy, which is trying to provide an imminent ecological critique of liberal democracy as we know it, and show in many ways that the liberal democratic emperor has no clothes. Okay, so I'll get back to that. Now, the thin side looks for the synergies and I think in many ways, when the modern environment was born, supposedly in the 1960s, as a globally ubiquitous and persistent movement to try and highlight and politicize the increasing production and unfair distribution of ecological risks, it started to perform environmental democracy right there from the beginning. What it did was highlight the many ways in which environmental citizenship and activism was good for democracy by increasing the flow of information, enriching public debate, expanding the range of ideas before us, and also how democracy was abs absolutely essential for environmental activism and the movement, which could not exist without freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, uh, access to the courts, and all of those things. So it played upon and exploited those synergies, and the environment movement was able to flourish, and democracy was stronger for it. And there have been achievements. We now see in uh, Principle 10 of the Rio Declaration, it calls for access to environmental information, public participation in decision-making and access to justice on environmental matters. We see it in a, a transboundary convention, the Aarhus Convention, that gives the citizens of all the signatory countries in Europe the same environmental due process rights no matter where the environmental problem arises or is generated from and where it falls out. Okay? And we see it in the new Environmental Democracy Index. Uh, which builds on, on these basic ideas. However, I think we have to admit that despite the achievements of the modern environment movement, they pale against the scale of the problem. And we're moving into serious, irreversible, and potentially catastrophic change. And I don't know who's going to get to talk about the Anthropocene, but this is a new geological epoch whereby humans have discovered that they are, we are geological agents. We know we've been changing environments ever since the year dot, but we've not really appreciated the fact that we've also been acting as geological agents, changing basic earth system processes in a way that could ultimately be inhospitable to human civilization. Okay, so if, we, if we've done all this without meaning to, unwittingly, unintentionally, what are the prospects of enacting this agency collectively and democratically? That's a really interesting question which I'll put to a side, no, no, I'll maybe address it. What I'm going to do now is talk about ecological democracy. And what I said, this was much more critical and therefore less practical, but it did have a bit of a practical edge to it. And I'll run through six quick, quick arguments as to what they put on the table. 
First, it carried forward very familiar criticisms of liberal democracy in terms of the skewed distribution of wealth, um, how the politics of partisan mutual adjustment and bargaining tends to favour powerful economic concentrated interests over diffuse public interests. And of course, globalisation has intensified these problems, but this was not new, but it was certainly part of the environment movement's argument or, and what ecological democrats started with. But they went, wanted to show how liberal democracies cannot prevent irreversible change because according to a good liberal democrat, the liberal democratic state is neutral. It does not seek to perfect society. It's anti-perfectionist. It just upholds civil and political rights, respects the irreducible nature of pluralism that we can't change and provides a neutral procedure by which we can govern ourselves through majoritarian rule. And any effort to try and steer things towards a particular end is just the latest road to serfdom. In fact, if you tried to guarantee sustainability, then that would, uh, that would actually undermine democracy. And so it leads us to believe. This idea that it's a swings and roundabout view of government. We can always vote out the mob we don't want and, and get a better chance next time, so we live with those outcomes, precisely because it's a provisional form of rule. But what that means, every win for the environment can always be undone. So that means you get this ratcheting effect against public environmental goods, against the interests of the global environment. And this happens because of the limited spatial and temporal horizons of liberal democracies and the way they work, fixed territories, short-term electoral um, cycles, combined with this politics of partisan mutual adjustment. So in a sense, the liberal democracies behave like capitalist firms. They externalise costs through space and time and very much caught up in the present. So this means they can perpetuate a kind of slow violence by pushing problems forward to communities, future generations, non-human species, without any sense of attentiveness to their interests, any sense of accountability. And of course, you can see the arbitrariness of national borders from an ecological point of view. And as Elizabeth Ellis said, it can seem as if the legitimating structure of democratic rule was invented for another world in which small, isolated groups of people made choices together about the self-regarding actions they would take. This is not the world we live in. In fact, if you really think seriously about complex economic and ecological interdependence, you'll begin to slowly grasp the fact that the idea of self-rule is a fantasy. It can only ever be partial, not quite. And this gives rise to the need to recognise the way in which we're inserted into larger processes, the way those larger processes act back on us, a kind of reflexivity that is very much lacking in liberal democracies. So a lot of ecological democrats supported the all-affected principle that, in principle, all those affected by decisions, and particularly the most affected, should be entitled to have a say or otherwise be represented in decisions that generate risks without regard to arbitrary national borders. They didn't want to replace liberal democratic rule. They just wanted this as a supplementary principle to compensate for the slow violence that it was producing through time and space. So it came up with a bunch of... Um, institutional um, designs, proxy representation, entrenchment of the precautionary principles, uh, setting up commissions for the future, all sorts of things. Okay, so it doesn't mean that it's making liberal democracy, it's not rigging the system, it's just essentially trying to widen horizons of space, time, agency and community. And we can do that within existing liberal democratic structures by encouraging that greater reflexivity. Okay, now most, most of these ideas emerged in the 1990s during, just at the end of the Cold War, during a very triumphant in, um, liberalism. The ecological movements working behind the old Iron Curtain had been instrumental in the downfall of the, of the Soviet Union. It was the heyday of globalization debates in the 1990s. The rise of cosmopolitan values. So, Environmental political theorists were working on democracy during this period, and so they focused on attacking liberal democratic complacency. Donald Runciman wrote a book recently called The Confidence Trap, and he said liberal democracies have managed to muddle through many crises during the last century, but he worries that they don't have the capacity to muddle through crises this century because of two things. Technological change, which is happening way too fast, and ecological change, which is taking place too slowly for liberal democracies to be able to challenge... Uh, basically deal with. So back in the 1990s was a period of optimism. 
Nobody then could foresee how quickly the liberal dream might decay. What we are seeing, what we saw throughout the 20th century was a global spread of liberal democracy with waves of democratization, but at the same time it started to decay in the center. So what we've seen, we've seen no new democratization since the turn of the millennium. What we've seen is a backsliding, particularly in Central Europe, okay, and a decay on the inside. But of course, Trump is just the symptom, okay? He's just a symptom of a series of developments that have been happening for a very long time. Anyone studying political parties have known they've become increasingly hollowed out over time. Um, membership of parties is declining. Um, we see uh, all sorts of developments that lead to a sort of disillusionment, and that, that's, this is not a new story, it's been going on for a long time. And ironically, it was during the 1990s, or rather probably the 1980s, with the intensification of globalisation, what I call the global phase of the modernisation process, the rise of neoliberalism that was helping to transform and change class structures and increasingly distribute wealth and income upwards and financial, economic and ecological risks downwards. And we wonder why we have a large number of very disaffected and excluded people. And yet political parties started to look more and more like Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The range of policy choices were diminishing and political and economic elites, elites seem to be working closer and closer. And let me give two quick examples of that. How is it that Donald Trump, press secretary can tell people to go out and buy Ivanka's fashion label. This is, this is where economic interests and political power have become so converged. Or why is it that our treasurer can bring a lump of coal into parliament, courtesy of the Mineral, Councils of, Mineral Council of Australia, and, and not, see, not see that? Say, so this is safe. Don't be fearful of this lump of coal. And so, what we also see is that Habermas wrote about the degradation of the public sphere, particularly in the second half of the century with the rise of infotainment and mass culture. What we're seeing now, of course, everyone knows this, the fragmentation of the public sphere and filter bubbles and increasing political polarisation. So the lesson from the history looking back is, whilst those of us who tried to thicken the way we think about liberal democracy to enlarge horizons, weren't so much wanting to throw environmental democracy out the window. We took that as given. We can no longer take that for granted because liberal democracies don't have strong means of preventing their own destruction. The only thing standing between Trump and a further slide away from democracy is the US Constitution because all the other branches of the government are lined up in a conservative, um, in a conservative end of politics. So there are two quick options and this is where I'll finish. One's political. And I think here the environment movement needs to broaden its frame and link arms with democracy movements of all persuasions, um, building a much broader base that connects environmental and economic justice. I think that's absolutely crucial. And it can do this in all sorts of ways, but I don't have time to go in that. I've got 30 seconds. The second one is really to focus on reinvigorating the public sphere, because that is where it has to happen. That's where the change has to happen. This includes not just fact-checking and, uh, and answering um, untruthful claims. Let's forget this post-truth politics. It's untruthful politics, okay? We know there are lots of things that are, not, that are contestable, claims about the world, but some, you know, black is black and white is white. And when you hear someone saying black is white, that's not post-truth politics. It's simply untruthful politics. Um, and I think there's lots of ways in which you can um, innovate with new social media. New social me media is the new normal now. You can crowdsource, you can do all sorts of things to break one single, like the opaque algorithm of Google. Uh, you need to use lots of social media so no algorithm is dominating. If they'll never tell you what it is, then just don't let it rise too much, I guess is my answer. And I'll end on a note of optimism. When Ronald Reagan came to power and started busily winding back environmental laws in America, it woke the environment movement from its slumber and it radicalised it. Donald Trump is now in the White House. He is radicalising the global environment movement. Okay? This is a very positive sign. Thank you. Okay. Um, 
It was good to hear Robin uh, conclude on a, on a positive note. Um, I've been trying to figure out how I, I could do the same, and maybe I'll try. Um, okay, the particular approach I take towards democracy is, uh, called, is now called deliberative democracy, although it didn't have that name when I started out long ago, as David pointed out. Uh, um, actually, it's over, over 30 years ago. Um, deliberative democracy takes a particular approach to trying to establish uh, meaningful communication at the heart of democratic politics. Um, there's a bit more to it than that, but I won't go into the details. I would argue that when it comes to uh, ecological questions in particular, there are some, some qualities that deliberative democracy has, uh, which means that it can uh, be, uh, be, be turned in the interest of ecological democracy. Um, so for example, it's, uh, I would argue it's a good way of um, integrating diverse perspectives on complex issues. Uh, it can lead to the prioritization of general interests, such as uh, environmental conservation, the integrity of ecosystems, um, as opposed to um, uh, particular material interests. Uh, and pre but perhaps most importantly, from a, an ecological perspective, um, it can enlarge perspectives concerning those actually not physically present in deliberations. And that includes uh, future generations and includes, includes the non-human world. We may have to work hard at that, but we actually have a, a bit of evidence um, that uh, deliberative forums, especially deliberative forums involving ordinary citizens, um, can actually move in, in, in those sorts of directions. Um, as David pointed out um, in his introductory remarks, um, the non-human world is actually screaming at us. It's just that we're extremely bad at, at listening. Um, so it's important to uh, think about um, how we can institution, how we can better institutionalize listening, um, not just in deliberative process, but also um, in, in, in democracy more generally. What I'm going to do uh, is take a look at how this idea of a an ecological democracy with deliberation at its center now looks in the light of um, three recent developments. Um, I was going to call the first one post-truth politics, but as Robin has just pointed out, we should really call it untruthful politics. Um, so that'll be my, my first one. The second um, is perhaps a, 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 a maybe a less visible development, which is, uh, which is the development of um, post-electoral democracy. Um, I think we've seen some major failures of, uh, of democracy recently, but that doesn't of electoral democracy, that doesn't necessarily mean that all kinds of democracy have necessarily failed. Um, and the third is, was also, the idea was also introduced by Robin, um, the, the concept of the um, Anthropocene, uh, which is now receiving a, a, a great deal of attention amongst um, natural scientists um, concerned, with, envir concerned with, 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 the, with the environment in a variety of disciplines, um, and also um, increasingly in, uh, in, in, in the social disciplines too, social sciences and humanities. Okay, um, so let me start with uh, post-truth or untruthful politics um, as, symbol, as sort of exemplified, of course, by the, by the, by the, by the rise of um, Trump um, and, and, and associated populism. I mean, in many ways, um, uh, I can think of very few advantages of this, but one of the advantages for me is that if I now try to explain to people what do I do, um, I do deliberative democracy, and people ask me what it is. Well, it's the opposite to political communication of, of, the, of the Trump approach, in a nutshell. Um, what uh, what untruthful, the rise of untruthful politics or post-truth politics suggests um, is that, uh, that um, perhaps um, human collective capacities uh, uh, are less inspiring than we previously thought. Um, again, Robin, Robin suggested that um, the project of ecological democracy was originally pursued against the background of liberal democracy, which seemed to be triumphant. And uh, we could think of deliberative democracy as well as ecological democracy as ways of um, somehow deepening and broadening existing democracies. Um, now, the, if, if existing electoral democracies, liberal electoral democracies, are in retreat, which, which they are in, in today's world, um, then things, look at, things suddenly look a bit different. Um, so how, how do we now look at ecological democracy in that light? Um, perhaps, um, uh, I mean, my own, actually my own way of, of thinking about it would be to say, well, um, if human collective capacities um, seem less than previously than we previously thought when it comes to the practice of democracy, um, why should we downgrade non-human capacities in comparison? Uh, Non-humans actually now look somewhat better in comparative terms when compared, compared with what goes on in, in, human, uh, in, human, in human, existing human liberal democratic systems. 
Um, the title of my talk is Trees versus Trump, or the subtitle is Trees versus Trump. Um, what advantages do trees have when it comes to communication? Well, trees don't lie. They don't, <laughs> they, they don't try to destabilize science um, by, uh, by well-financed uh, uh, doubt. Um, they don't disseminate or believe fake news. They don't believe things that are manifestly false. So if we're looking for honesty in communication, then we'd do much better listening to trees and listening to Trump. Um, uh, Peter Walbin, in his recent <laughs> book, The Hidden Life of Trees, um, points out the subtle ways in which trees communicate with each other to their mutual advantage. So, um, so we humans shouldn't uh, regard ourselves as being the only, the only species which, um, uh, which, which can engage in meaningful, meaningful communication. Other species do it as well, not just um, animal species, but as Wallabin points out, um, uh, plants can do it as well. Um, he treats some um, forests as social networks. Trees can communicate dangers with each other. For example, acacia trees give off ethylene if giraffes start eating them, which warns other trees to start pumping toxins into the leaves to deter giraffes. So there are all these processes like this in the, in the non-human world. Um, communicative processes, and uh, we, we ought to be able to do a a, a better job of, of, of listening to them. In the post-truth world, uh, we should try, we, we could perhaps try and achieve a new appreciation of the relative merits of human and non-human communication and agency. Um, okay, so that's, so in a way, post-truth politics is the big development. Um, perhaps um, less visible is the development of um, post-electoral democracy. And I notice uh, um, John Keane is in the room and he's, of course, uh, uh, written extensively about a particular kind of, um, of, of non-electoral democracy, which he calls monetary democracy. Um, there's a, I'm going to um, take a look at a, very, a somewhat different kind of post-electoral democracy, which um, has achieved a bit of interest um, uh, in, in the recent past. And that's, um, uh, uh, that, that's sortition, or the use of random selection in politics as an alternative to election. Um, I've long thought that, um, that, that sortition, or random selection, uh, could go particularly well with deliberative democracy because randomly selected citizens have some particular virtues uh, which elected politicians don't necessarily have in such large quantity. In particular, the, vir the virtue of being able to listen and reflect and change their minds if necessary, which elected politicians don't do. Um, so, uh, so, for example, there have been uh, proposals uh, made by, well, uh, the, 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 mo the most radical proposals recently have been made in a, a, a book by um, uh, David Van Braybrook, um, in which uh, he, it, it's the, he calls it the case for democracy, but it's the title of the book that is actually against elections. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to um, suggest that we should completely replace elections with random selection, uh, but I think it would be interesting to, exper to experiment, for example, with an upper house that was randomly selected um, and would, you know, to, re to replace the, the Senate in Australia, in the, the, the US. I mean, it's Sounds like a utopian proposal, but it would bring a particular kind of set of virtues to, uh, uh, to politics which is currently lacking, which is the, uh, the ability to listen and reflect. Uh, the model there, of course, is a jury trial where we have a jury composed of randomly selected citizens. We charge them with some very, very important decisions. Um, why not do the same when it comes to um, houses of parliament? Um, now, I used to think that selecting executives by random selection would be a really bad idea. Um, now I'm not so sure. Um, think of, um, let, let, well, let's think of, think of Trump. Um, I, I mean, my own judgment is that, there's, that if you selected a president of the United States by random selection of a citizen of the United States, there's probably an 80 to 90% chance that that person would make a better president than Trump. Um, Maybe there's a 50% chance they would be a good president. And we, I mean, who knows um, what, what the exact percentage would be. Um, I'd actually go further and say that there's a 100% chance that a randomly selected tree would make a better president than Trump. <laughs> For example, that tree right there, that would do extremely well. Um, I did think that then, but then, you know, that, that then, that then, but then there was a zero chance that they would be a good president. But that's only a zero chance from a human point of view, an anthropocentric point of view. Um, from the point of view of the trees, of other trees, um, that tree might make a, a really good president. Um, trees work on a different time scale uh, to, to humans. Um, we, yeah. So, anyway, um, 
So I think there, there are some virtues about thinking of democracy in, in different non-electoral directions, and that might involve the, um, the, the kinds of um, sort of civil society, social movement uh, mobilization that, uh, that Robin alluded to. Um, finally, I'd like to take a quick look at the, the Anthropocene. Um, this is, as Robin pointed out, um, a new epoch, an, or an emerging epoch, um, in which humans are, affect the parameters of the Earth system and the way it works, the successor to the relative stability of the past 11,000 years or so of the, the Holocene. Um, this, this really is a, a very different world that we're entering. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's recognized by a lot of scientists, and um, it, it's, it, it's had yet to have much sort of traction in the, in the, in the real world of, of, of politics. Um, I've argued that we really need to think about human institutions and uh, political institutions in particular and in terms of how appropriate existing institutions are when it, com when it comes to the anth Anthropocene. That our existing institutions, uh, uh, the liberal democratic governments, um, capitalist markets, you name it, um, emerge in the Holocene um, against, uh, against background conditions of, uh, of seeming stability in the Earth system. Well, things really, things really look a lot different if the system is now unstable as a result of um, human influence on it. Um, we can't assume that, that, that the Earth system is fixed and forgiving. Um, it, there's a new potential for, uh, for well, it's potentially ca catastrophic um, instability in, in the system. Um, and in a way, that means that non-human entities really do emerge as really serious players in human systems. Uh, we really can't ignore nature. Um, it, it won't just scream at us. Um, it, it, some, some really bad things can happen to us and the rest of nature as well as a result of uh, the kind of instability that um, humans have now introduced in, in the system. And, and climate change is really just the first foretaste of, of, of those possibilities. Um, what does this mean for democracy? Well, um, in conjunction with um, uh, Jonathan Pickering, who's one of the organizers of, uh, of the uh, Ecological Democracy Conference that we're part of these, these couple of days. Um, we have a project on um, deliberating the Anthropocene, not managing it. Um, uh, I would argue that um, deliberation can be thought of as one point of leverage in disrupting the problematic path dependency of existing institutions which developed in the, in the, the Holocene um, which are so good at generating feedback which seems to reinforce their own necessity. So think of um, global financial institutions um, after uh, 2008. Um, that they, they, they manage to uh, position themselves as too big to fail. They generate feedback which seems to reinforce their own, own necessity. So we need to find ways of, um, of disrupting those sorts of, pos uh, those, those sorts of problematic um, path dependencies of institutions which seem very good at perpetuating themselves um, very poor at actually uh, confronting the challenges of the Anthropocene. Um, so overall, we need, um, we need uh, an enhanced uh, reflexivity in, uh, in, in all kinds of human institutions, and reflexi reflexivity there being understood is simply the capacity to sort of rethink and change themselves if necessary, to be something different rather than just do different things, like adopt better environmental policies. That may not be enough. Um, so that, um, I mean, in a way, that's sort of very idealistic. Um, it seems that um, the real world is moving in the opposite direction, but it doesn't mean it always has to move that way. Um, uh, so I conclude then that um, ecological democracy is actually more urgent than ever. Um, it's not something we should give up on, um, although clearly the fact that it's more urgent than ever doesn't mean that, that, that it will happen anytime soon. But, um, that, that, uh, but it's, it's always possible to think in terms of, well, uh, what particular moves can we make, uh, that, make uh, that, that move in the direction of a more deliberative and more ecological democracy, um, even if uh, the wholesale adopt adoption of this, this way of thinking about democracy is not going to happen anytime soon. So I want to ask a few questions before I open the floor to all of you. And I guess what I'm going to, well, I was going to sort of do it historically and sort of start with this question of means and ends, but I, I think I'm going to change that question a little bit because we, we have had this question in ecological democracy about the conflict between you know, getting something done on the one hand and depending on democracy on the other. And where, where do we put our energy? And this is where the eco-authoritarians have come in and this is 
where the boundaries question comes in, you know, we've, we've exceeded this, so we need to act now. This is where um, Peter's, uh, Peter Christoph's discussion this morning about time, we're out of time, is it time to limit rights? You know, what, they're, they're, we've had this question before. But I think, and, and we've talked about that for 30 years, for me, what's interesting about this increasing urgency is that the resistance that we're getting from the Trumpocene and the Trumpocene is one of elitists or fascists, take your pick, telling everybody else in a very paternalistic way what it is that they should do. So it's not just calling anymore. This urgency is not just calling for an authoritarianism. It's a, the urgency is actually empowering an authoritarianism of paternalism against us. So I'm, I'm curious about this sort of new conflict between, you know, are we, are we elitist? Are we going to be perceived as elitist? Does the urgency that environmental thinkers bring up actually decrease the chances of democratic responses and increase instead the kind of things we're seeing in the Trump regime? You want to start with that, Robin? Sure. I, I think the binary between paternalism and populism is really damaging. Um, the so-called deplorables detest um, the paternalism of certain dimensions of the environment movement, the, the holier-than-thou thing that sticks in their craw. Let me just read something that went viral. It's an extract from Richard Rorty's book published in 2007 called Achieving Our Country. And he said, members of labor unions and unorganized, unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they will realize that suburban white-collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for. Someone willing to assure them that, once he's elected, the smug bureaucrats, the tricky lawyers, the overpaid bond salesmen, and postmodern professors will no longer be calling the shots. You can imagine just after the election, this went viral. This was written way before Trump. And so I think the problem there is, is I think the deliberative on, the enclave problem, it's very serious, and we need what John has called bridging rhetoric, not bonding rhetoric. And I think the framing must begin with economic and environmental injustices, and they must be linked to unaccountable practices. That chain of linkage has to be shored up to show that this is, to, to bridge that. And I think the really tricky one is, is increasing differentiation and specialization of knowledge on the one hand, and increasing inequality means that not everyone's sharing that education. And the resentment there is profound to the point where they will not listen to the, the literati anymore. And so unless you can find a way of bridging that, and I think the best way of doing that is to connect global systemic changes with very local things like food, health of the elderly, transport, um, increasing likelihood of disasters, and translate that. But also, it's not just about public dissemination of science, it's about including local people in scientific research as monitors, as peer reviews, as asking questions for scientists um, to uh, research. I don't think you can make scientists fully-fledged Democrats or local folk fully trained scientists, but you can certainly improve understanding so that citizens can understand both the strengths and the limitations and uncertainties of science. Because we all know a good scientist is a sceptical one. Um, and I think that's one way in which we can break down that paternalism and populism. Because of course, right-wing populism is only one kind, but it's the one that we're worrying about at the moment. Um, you know, the, ch the charge of um, elitism and paternalism, um, I, c I can see why that, uh, that, that charge does have, um, does have um, uh, some, some rhetorical force, but I mean, it's a, it's a bit ironic if you look at, um, you know, if you think of, um, of Trump, for example, as, um, as, as exemplifying uh, populism, well, uh, Who's in his cabinet? Um, he's got. He's stacked his cabinet with um, uh, with, with with billionaires. Um, so it seems that uh, yeah, the charge of elitism is is uh, seems to be a bit uh, uh, a, a, well. It's, it's a bit ironic um, given the uh, elitists who 
of the, the other, of another, a, different, a very different kind of elite who seem to be um, uh, 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 benefiting from that, from, from making that, 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 that kind of charge. Um, nevertheless, um, um, I think as, uh, we, as democratic theorist Simone Chambers, who was here speaking in um, Australia in the last few days, um, pointed out, um, uh, populism does represent a kind of inclusion uh, of people who had regarded themselves as being uh, outside the system and mar marginalized. And, and rather than just sort of dismiss, uh, dismiss the people who are attracted by those populist appeals, um, we do need to think about, well, uh, you know, why, do, why did they feel excluded? Why were they in fact excluded? Um, and in trying to, in, in, in trying to, um, in, in, in trying to sort of uh, to, to think about how to um, how, how to how to reach uh, pe people in, in the way that Trump seems to have done quite Trump and other populists seem to have done quite successfully, then uh, we do, as Robin suggested, um, need to think very carefully about uh, um, about the, the kind of um, the kinds of pills we make, the kind of rhetoric we use, um, which should um, indeed be bridging rather than bonding. And bridging re means sort of trying to take um, seriously the perspectives of the people of the audience one is trying to reach, even though that perspective is, is different. Um, and that may be hard work, um, but it is not impossible um, in, uh, in linking, for, exa for example, um, ecological concerns with uh, uh, the very material concerns of people who have been, um, who have not benefited from uh, recent decades of economic growth as income has, has, has gone down, who feel increasingly marginalized. Um, it wasn't uh, environmental concern which did that to them. Uh, it, was the, it was the trajectory of um, neoliberal economics of the, of the kind that um, has led to um, so much ecological devastation too. So uh, really, it shouldn't be that hard to, to link those two um, in a productive kind of way. Let me try another question. One, one, of the other, one of the other ideas that's come up again and again in, in environmental democracy is about the role of the state. One of the questions is how important is the state? And Robin was actually, actually Robin on the one hand, and then John and I wrote some work uh, on this as well. Um, uh, Robin, though, was the first to argue against a lot of uh, eco-radicals or eco-anarchists or eco-democrats um, that they shouldn't give up on the state, right? That the state was really important, that we needed to engage the state, that we could actually develop the green state, which is the, the title of the book. Actually, that's in both of the books. And I'm curious now, because I've spent um, the last couple of years looking into some grassroots movements, material movements, movements, very democratic movements of people in food systems and energy systems and sustainable fashion uh, and making. And there's a Across the board, there's a thorough disillusionment, at least with the nation state. There's a necessary, especially in food, there's a necessary engagement at the local level. But I'm curious if anybody is now rethinking, hint, hint, this focus <laughs> in the Trumpocene uh, on the role of the nation state and whether ecological democracy might be better fought around material life, everyday life. Surely that's a Robin. <laughs> oh, oh, I'll start. I think I am doing some rethinking about the green state, the green state in transition, but I still hold to my view, and in this sense I remain revisionist, that I don't think you can build an ecological society behind the back of the state. States are unrivaled in having the steering systems, um, taxation law, uh, and a platform uh, for nation building that can make amazing strides forward if the will can be harnessed. So the question is, what is it the state can do best or only do, and what can be better done by other means? I think you need to always think about state and non-state governance uh, in terms of how they work together. Um, so I think we forget about the nation side of the nation-state equation. It's really interesting to see how different national propensities, some of which are deeply fractured in terms of what the nation means and who does the nation building and others which are, which are, there's a broader consensus like in the Scandinavian countries, which help to define the purpose of that governance structure. And it's quite possible to have a cosmopolitan nationalist nation. Cosmopolitan nationalism. We think nationalism's necessarily inward looking. Ethnic nationalism, good, cosmopolitan, so bad, cosmopolitan, good. But I just don't, I think we need to, destabilize those boundaries, it's quite possible to cultivate 
broader imaginaries of community. And that's what I think all democracies presuppose ideas of space, time, community, and agency, and inclusion and exclusion. The borders of existing liberal democracies have never been negotiated democratically and can't because that presupposes the political community, which is the very thing in contention. So the most fundamental coordinates of democracy can never be defended democratically. That's the democratic paradox and democratic theory. So, but we have to rebuild the ship while at sea. We're stuck with states. They're going to be around for a while. We change the imaginary. And we do that through, you know, ground up. So I think, I guess I still think, um, I, I don't think I'm as optimistic as I was in the 2000s. <laughs> I don't think anyone is. I don't think it's possible to be. But I still think there's some things you cannot do behind the back of the state. And there's some things that only states can do. And we need to figure out what those things are. So I, I wanted to ask another question because I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about President Tree and how we get there. But um, I, I feel it's necessary to open it up to all of you. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, at the start, the comment was made, uh, nature is screaming at us. Uh, but the people that convey that message are often scientists who are quite unemotive, who have to be unemotive. So I'm wondering if uh, what we're talking about lacks a firebrand, someone who can get a bit angry about it, a bit of mongrel in the discussion. And second of all, it seems that um, organisations like uh, the big mining companies are able to politically lobby very effectively. Um, why, ha why haven't opposite forces being able to be quite as effective. Anyone want to take those up? <laughs> Stump the panel. We'll let them well, think about that. Well, I would just say there's a lot of crowdsourcing going on at the moment. That's a really encouraging development. I mean, you know, Avers get up, they crowdsource um, counter-hegemonic ads to try and meet that organised power. And we're seeing this too with new forms of social media, new platforms that are developing. And it's moving very fast. I think only the last two years or so are the years where the digital revolution has really punched through in a way where it's the new normal. Um, and this is something we really need to keep a tab on <laughs> as to how it works, because it's, it's a mixed development. So, um, so I think that crowdsourcing is going on in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, yes, I want to ask a question that, that uh, may shift the, the boundaries of the discussion more than you, than you may care to go. But um, I think John made the point that our institutions of governance arose in the, emerged out of the Holocene and in a sense take, uh, are based on givens that are no longer given. So they've take, take, sort of take for granted a, a, de a degree of environmental stability and benignness which can no longer be taken for granted. So that we have problems of governance institutions who are actually not equipped to deal with the nature of the problems we face. It's a, you know, there's a disjuncture between the nature of the institutions and the context that they are now operating in. And it seems to me, I mean, some people talk about the term, um, or use the term, the Anthropocene paradox. And the paradox is essentially that humans have created forces that are transforming the planet, which is a kind of superhuman achievement that we might congratulate ourselves for, except for the dire consequences. And we've created those forces, but we can't control them. And this is the paradox. Does that mean that, um, in a sense, we've reached the limits to, uh, to what we understand to be politics? We've actually, we're actually dealing with issues that are beyond the remit of politics as we conventionally understand them. Um, Can we just take it at that? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, okay, I can respond to that. Um, I think... Uh, I think the, the key qualification that you put it right at the end, um, as we conventionally understand it, is, is the important one. Um, and what that suggests is that we need to sort of think, think more deeply about how we do understand politics um, and how politics um, could be 
transformed in order to, uh, in order to meet the challenge of the, the Anthropocene. Um, just think about states in particular. Um, states have, actually haven't been around for very long, um, uh, two or three hundred years. And in that time, they've transformed themselves first into capitalist states, which they weren't when they started, in which their, their first concern was to, um, uh, to enable the conditions for a flourishing capitalist economy. That only happened within the last um, 200 years or so. Um, they transformed into welfare states. Um, that happened even more recently, say the last, um, the last century. Um, can we think about, can, can they tr transform themselves into ecological states, which they're definitely not now, um, but at least we could, we, we, could we, we might be able to, and we might conclude that they can't, uh, in which case we have to think about ways of moving beyond the state. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so the Anthropocene means that we have unleashed these, um, these, these enormous um, forces which we, which, which we can't control. Um, our current politics, our current political institutions are clearly um, inadequate um, when it comes to meeting the response. Um, so we do need to think about, uh, about transformation and self, well, the capacity of those, uh, those, those institutions to transform themselves in response. I'll keep your questions. Oh, uh, Susie Fraser, Citizens Climate Lobby. Perhaps I'm the answer for the person up the back. Anyway, uh, I, I find myself in meetings with politicians, small meetings, you know, like maybe six to ten people around a table, and they, we meet politicians from all parties. So we try to do that bridging thing that you were talking about, and it's definitely extended my bubble uh, because it's very different trying to have a conversation with somebody that you don't agree with uh, than just polishing the rhetoric for your own position. So I just wondered what you guys might uh, say that would uh, forward the action about those uh, rather more intimate conversations that we can build futures with. Practical policy lessons. Sorry, is that Robin's You're saying the other one? Oh, okay, yeah, bridging bonding rhetoric. That, that's one of my things. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, uh, re yeah, reaching people who you don't who don't share your your starting point. I mean, that, that, yeah, that, I think that's really crucial. Um, and uh, where do I start? Um, yeah, I've done that, actually done a little bit of work on this um, on um, uh, rhetoric um, and climate change denial. Um, so this, is, this was just from a, 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 small, a relatively small-scale forum um, in, uh, that we ran in camp. That actually, one of my PhD, one of my PhD students, um, Alex Lowe, at the time, um, ran. Um, and there, we, that we, uh, the forum contained several climate change deniers, deliberately recruited um, because they were deniers. Um, and it was interesting seeing the degree to which um, particular ways of framing things um, could could, uh, could bring those people into thinking seriously about um, policies such as a carbon tax or um, emissions trading scheme, um, even though they didn't necessarily accept the reality of climate change, they could still be brought into thinking productively about what kinds of policy instruments uh, might be adopted and whether they would be a good idea or a bad idea. And so the, uh, the, there was a particular um, rhetorical move uh, made, not intentionally, but just um, uh, by one of the, one of the participants, um, in the, one of the citizen participants in the forum, who, who talked about, well, what we need is a Medicare for the climate. Um, everyone likes Medicare in Australia. It's very, and you know, there's a dedicated tax, the Medicare lobby, which goes to, towards um, funding it. And so, um, so the, the 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 group started sort of talking about, well, um, isn't uh, wouldn't a Medicare for the, what about Medicare for the climate? Um, it would be, um, it wouldn't be just a tax that um, uh, was wasted. It would be dedicated to particular kinds of projects, um, which would be environmentally beneficial. And um, and yeah, and even. And even um, the, the climate change deniers who were there thought this would actually this actually might be a good idea. Um, so there are ways of. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting that that's a universal, uh, a, a universally applicable um, move, but it but it just shows that you know you can, you can sort of think about framing things productively in ways which induce people who even uh, you know who completely disagree um, with with the with, with with the need for any kind of action at all on the climate. You can bring them into productive discussions about what to do. Just a footnote to that argument. Bob Inglis, 
a Republican from the US, is traveling around talking at the moment about a tax and dividend scheme, which appeals to Republican, Republicans who hate big government. So the idea here is you tax carbon polluters and all the money is then sent back to taxpayers as a dividend. Guess what? They like it. <laughs> Who wouldn't? So you can design, you know, it's just a further instantiation of, of John's ideas. Well, thank you very much to um, all of you. It's a uh, really interesting, stimulating uh, discussion. John Keane is my name. Um, I think some years ago they abolished the, the role of devil's advocate at the Vatican. And I've always believed that we should keep it alive. So um, here's, here's the devil's advocate question. If, if I came from the outside and knew nothing about this topic, I'd be very confused about what uh, you all mean by ecological democracy. And I think that there is a deep tension that runs through uh, probably almost everything that has been said between two options. One option is uh, thinking historically that ecological democracy is analogous to what liberals meant when they invented the the phrase liberal democracy or Christian democracy or social democracy or Islamic democracy in our times, where it means that people govern themselves through their representatives and they fill life with green content. And they do so with uh, fewer pesticides and preservation of, of uh, endangered species and so on and do so through the use of procedures, not only elections, but deliberative forums and, and so on. That's ecological democracy in one sense. On the other hand, it seems to me that John, with his suggestion of eucalyptus uh, democracy, is onto something. <laughs> uh, because when you think about it, here comes the question to all of you, democracy is the most thoroughly anthropocentric political form that we human beings ever invented. No reference to God or limits, but it's the people who should govern themselves on this earth and use this earth as they will. There's something intrinsically wrong, it seems to me, uh, with that, and that raises the question of whether some of the virtues of democracy that are, no one mentioned equality, humility, um, refusal to dominate others, whether those virtues require actually a fundamental redefinition of democracy and is that what ecological democracy points towards? It would be the first historical attempt to refuse uh, the human hubris that, you know, people can govern themselves without giving a shit about anybody else. What? <laughs> It's a great question, Guy. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what, yeah. you know where, where it is. What does this ecological democracy mean? Uh, for me, ecological democracy is the second one of those, um, that it's uh, a move beyond the uh, anthropocentrism of, uh, of uh, existing democracies. And, and it does um, embody the virtues that you talked about, of humility and uh, non-domination, but not just, um, in relation, not just when it comes to human relationships to each other, but human uh, relationships to... Um, to uh, to, to, well, to, to trees, to non-human nature. Well, well, what was called non-human nature, but in the Anthropocene is less non-human than it was before. So, um, yeah, to me, that's what, that's what ecological democracy means. But if I could add, it does raise the prospect of having... You, you widen political representation to include political representation on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. I mean, you don't second... You, if... if if folk can speak for themselves, you don't speak for them. You let them speak for yourselves. But non-human species, future generations, need guardians, trustees to take that role. Now, a lot of traditional Liberal Democrats say that's problematic because you have no authority to speak. You haven't been authorised by them, the principal agent idea. And you say, well, if you insist on that, then they can't be represented and that can't be right. And so your representations, therefore, have to be subjected to scrutiny in the public sphere. And I think that's, that's the way of guarding, guarding that. But I think that's, that's necessary. And this democracy is still revisable. Anything that's to be called a democracy must be revisable. You can entrench provisions in the Constitution, which Ecuador did in 2011. They inserted a clause that defended Pachamama, Mother Nature, and citizens can take actions against corporations or governments to protect 
wild rivers, ecosystems and forests, and, and they've done that successfully a few times, although the non-profit foundation supporting Indigenous people and others has now been nobbled. But nonetheless, it's self-binding. It was 63% of the population voted for that. It's revisable. Another supermajority can get rid of it if necessary. You need that because of human fallibilism. If you don't have mechanisms for self-correction, then I don't think it's a democracy. So I, I, we should talk, John. I, I, I would push even further myself and say that the, the sort of conceptual underpinning of liberal democracy, the rational individual, is a complete fiction. The more we learn about nature, the more we learn about ecological relationships, the less realistic that is. I mean, we know that we're interdependent. We know we depend on materials, air, water, food, energy that flows you know, in and out of uh, our own systems. But we're learning more and more that our very identity, our very personality is determined in some ways by a microbiome, by a non-human, by, by forms that live within us. And the, that just makes us, both of those, the internal, the external um, relations, it makes us less individual. And it just brings that idea of the liberal individual um, to the realization, I mean, brings us to the realization that that's just a fiction. And if it is, we've got to rethink liberal democracy. So there's a lot more work to do. I guess that's a good way to end. There's a lot more work to do. So, uh, and we're going to spend tomorrow starting on that. Uh, and so. I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to thank the speakers, uh, and um, we'll continue the conversation. Thank you.